winter is coming. You're listening to the Watchers of Westeros. I am the king! A Game of Thrones podcast. When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. Fire cannot kill a dragon. Lion doesn't concern himself with the opinions of a sheep. I've also heard the phrase, a Lannister always pays his debt. For the night is dark and full of terror. What good is power if you cannot protect the ones you love? We can avenge them. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Watchers of Westeros, a Game of Thrones podcast. What an episode this week. Wow, Game of Thrones. I, 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 I think that's a first in a really long time. A happy episode of Game of Thrones. Happy things happened. I don't know, I don't know what, I don't know how to feel about what I saw on Sunday. Uh, but we'll talk about all of that and so much more as we discuss the episode. Season 6, Episode 4, Book of the Stranger. Uh, we'll get into that right away, but first introductions are in order. My name is Dominic, and I need a maester right now. I have just had my butt kicked by this cold that I've had, and, and I, I apologize for any coughing and sneezing that you may hear during the show, as well as for just the general quality of my voice. It's just been awful. I, I couldn't find any um, milk of the poppy, so I just drank half a thing of buckley's instead so hopefully that'll either like poison my liver or get me through the rest of the show one or the other we'll find out uh, as the show goes on but here to help me out to, to do the heavy lifting this week to get us get us through the episode is my good friend and co-host the award-winning karen duggan hello dominic and well done dominic for coming on the show today because i know that uh, as you expressed there that you, you do need you do need a maester to kind of help you through this. And I, in that sense, I hope to be that maester to kind of be the assister and the one to kind of do the heavy lifting throughout this. And, you know, perhaps in podcasting terms, try and earn the title of award winning, you know, because, you know, the award winning <laughs> kind of came from when I was doing the uni radio stuff. What? And now I need to really put this into practice yes. in the podcasting world and show and show why you're still actually working with me uh, <laughs> at least three years since we've really got to know each other properly. So yeah. there's a lot of pressure like, that's going to be put on me in this episode, Dominic. Has it, has it been three years or has it been long? It's, 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 been, it's three... been about five years since we've communicated with each other. Yeah, but we were doing the Star Wars Underworld. Since we yeah. properly met each other. Yeah, it was yeah. July. Ju- ju- june july july 2013 yeah celebration star wars celebration europe and star wars celebration europe is coming up again and finally get to see you again it'll be it'll be great yeah that's 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 the thing about podcasting is it's great because there's an ocean between us and we can uh we can keep it uh we can keep keep talking about the things we enjoy and, and hopefully you enjoy listening to us talk about them uh the other thing i do want to mention before i turn things over to you to get us into the episode um is the uh is is the iTunes feed uh as we talked about last week it disappeared and i found out it was deleted from iTunes which was i don't know why but apparently it that this happens uh but i've resubmitted it to iTunes it's been reapproved and hopefully within the next 48 hours 
uh, you will be able to download these on iTunes again. And um, to everybody, to everybody who's been waiting for that, thank you for your patience. We apologize profusely for that. Um, and to everybody who's listening on iTunes, thank you so much for, for, for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. I swear I don't usually sound like this. <laughs> I, I don't usually sound like I'm going to keel over and die any second from now. <laughs> Um, and, and what, what is this show distance is that Dominic is dedicated, dedicated to this podcast yes. and, and, uh, that's, <laughs> and, and for that you should leave us a five star review <laughs> and we'll give you sickness and health that's, yeah exactly I mean, that's more of a wedding proverb but you know <laughs> apparently, apparently I'm married to Game of Thrones that's, that's, what's, what's going on here yeah. which in the world of Game of Thrones and is not least, that good a thing at least for ten weeks at least for ten weeks yeah at the end of ten weeks, I'll be murdered and or something by by the series. That's how that's how it works with this show. Uh, but uh, yeah, but let's let's get into the episode, and so I'll, I'll throw it over to you. Where do you want to start? I think we should start with the way the episode started. Funnily enough, let's let's go in a more chronological yeah. sense. And so, <laughs> how about that? <laughs> how about starting? I know. the episode starts. That's that's unheard of. I know it, it. It is almost an unoriginal idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're going to start off by looking at the wall, and in particular, we look at the way the the episode starts off. And we start off with Jon Snow talking with Ed, who and then Ed is is a little bit shocked about the fact that Jon is just you know packing up his things and leaving. He's trying to persuade John about this fact that he, he's submitted an, uh, to a, to an oath, and John can't not continue to be the Lord Commander in Ed's eyes. But you know, John makes this good case about the fact that well, how can he trust his brothers? <laughs> These were the same brothers that killed him for goodness' sake. And so we get into that kind of argument, but that gets suddenly put on the sideline because the horn horn sounds and somebody's coming in through the gates and it's Sansa Stark with Brienne of Tarth and Podrick and so John and Sansa reunite for the first time on screen apparently is what I heard so this yeah. is quite quite a moment I have to say so I'm going to ask you this first question Dominic well, maybe two questions rolled into one. But number one, were you surprised at the fact that Sansa and John managed to reunite at King's Landing like in the, the sense the that you thought that Jon Snow may well have gone before Sansa arrived? And the second part of that question is, how effective do you think this scene was? Yeah, I, I thought it was I thought it was hugely effective. I thought it was was it was great because. I didn't think it would happen. I thought last week when John walked off and he said, my watch has ended, he was leaving Castle Black and he was not going to be there this week. And so when we saw the preview and there was Sansa, Brienne and, and Pod at the, at the, the opening of the gate, I was like, oh my God, not again. He, he just left and now you arrive because that's how it works on Game of Thrones. They, it's with, especially with the Starks, it's just been a series of, of near misses, whether it's Bran watching John and the and the Night's Watchmen fight in the in the forest beyond the wall at at Craster's Keep, or or if it's uh, Arya arriving uh, at the phrase just 
after the Red Wedding. You know, they're always just missing each other. And, you know, Arya wanted to go north and, and wound up going to Bravos instead. And, you know, it, it's a situation where, like, they just, like, these, this family has not been all together since the, like, the pilot. Like, it's, it's, it, it's, it's, it's kind of amazing that they, that, you know, the, the way, the way the story has, the way the story has gone. Excuse me. And, and so when they did reunite, there was something so fulfilling, even if it was these two characters who, you know, they, they didn't have much time together. They, I, I don't, I, I feel like that's a slight exaggeration that they were never on screen together. Like they might have been in like one long, long shot or something together, but we had never seen them really interact. And, and so I, I thought it, you know, even if, even if it had, even if it was those two, I think getting that moment of, of reuniting them, you know, it, it felt right. It felt good. It was nice to see. Like I said, it was a happy episode. It was a happy moment on a series that's been full of so many dark moments, even in a season that's had some very, very dark mo- moments and following a season, you know, season five that was even darker. So to, to get, to get those two back together and, and, you know, they, they talk about the fact that they, you know, they never really got along beforehand. You know, you know, John was brooding off in the corners where Sansa, you know, you know, she said she was awful or terrible to him or you know, whatever she says. And, and yet after everything that they have been through, they still have that family connection that, that, um, you know, that, that, uh, oh, what's the word? Um, unconditional, unconditional love for each other as, as brother and sister. Um, I'm, we're mm. not, we're not getting into the, the John Sansa shippers, um, that exist. Um, but they, 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 you know, they have that, that, that bond of siblings and of family. And so, you know, like I said, after everything that they have, they have been through, um, Sansa with, with everything with Ramsay and, and John being betrayed and everything that came before that learning of the death of, of so many of their family members and, and witnessing it on, on Sansa's part with Ned, uh, to then see this, this friendly face who you grew up with, who somebody who you can, you trust implicitly and, and, and care for immensely. I thought that scene was very, very powerful. The way that like they couldn't, you know, it was in, in a way, in some ways it was kind of cliched that the way it was shot. Um, you know, they like they almost couldn't believe it, and then they went for the the big long <laughs> hug. Um, but it was still very very powerful. You know, it's, it's cliched for a reason. It works. Yeah, I agree. And it it was uh, the way it was shot and executed. It was it was nice, but it was also horrible in a way to watch it the first time because we're so used to the way game of thrones operates and functions that we think something bad's going to happen you know we expect that sansa arrives john's there they they can't just hug and everything will be all right that's not game of thrones all is gonna come back from the dead and and, and shoot her or something yeah exactly that was the thing some random one of the walls of castle black is going to collapse on sansa and it just horribly ending her story now yeah i mean you just think it sounds jokingly but you just thought something bad was going to happen to them but when you watch it for the second and third time it becomes a nice heartwarming moment when you realize no they're going to reunite and now sansa and john are going to be a a force together they're going to work side by side it seems Although it's clear it took a bit of a convincing. And 
I'll ask you this, this next question about John's motivations at this point before the Bolton scout arrives and, you know, tells everyone in, 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 in the kind of hierarchy of, of, of the Night's Watch what's really going on at Winterfell. But what did you make of John when he was talking with Sansa one-to-one about the fact that, you know, he didn't want to get involved in the fight and he'd had enough of it? Could you kind of... Em- not necessarily empathise, because I guess you haven't really been in that situation, but could you at least sympathise with what John was talking about there? Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I can't really, you know, I, I can't really relate to that, having not um, been stabbed and then brought back to life a few days later through some kind of crazy magic. Uh, but no, yeah, it, 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 you can absolutely understand where he's coming from of, of not wanting to fight and, you know, wanting to, to, to find somewhere else to go and... and, and uh, you know, I mean, he's in, you know, in this situation, you you can understand both sides. You know, you understand Sansa's perspective. She she kind of wants revenge. And whereas you can uh, you can understand John's perspective where he's he's just tired. He's been through it all already. He doesn't want to fight anymore. Um, and, and which which is kind of interesting because it's kind of reversal of of their characters. Right. You know, John was always the guy who was off looking for adventure, looking for honor, honor. Whereas Sansa was like, I just want to marry the king. I just want to marry Joffrey and be the queen and, and live happily ever after. And, you know, they're, and now sort of John's looking for that happily ever after and Sansa's looking for – is out for blood. Uh, excuse me. Uh, uh, but the other, the other interesting aspect of it is that, um, you know, it, 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 you can on, – on first glance, you know, the fact that, that Ramsay Bolton has, has Rickon – May seem and, and being what um, being what finally spurs John into action may seem like a bit of a, a backhanded or, or some kind of insult to to Sansa because she wanted him to go and fight because of what she had been through, but he didn't want to, and it was only when Rickon uh, was in danger that that John finally agreed to go and fight. But I, I think you know he he didn't want to, but he also wanted to. I think it was a situation. Where he he knew that Sansa was right, he knew that that's what he should do, but he he just like he, you know he's tired, he didn't want to go through that again. And the other thing is, you know, at this point Sansa is safe. There's no reason the two of them can't go off and and you know start a new life somewhere down south, and and you know then he'll he'll find some young lady, and Sansa will find some young man or whatever, and they'll uh, they'll, they'll um, you know just go off and start their own families somewhere else having you know both of them being safe at that point you know they they are in a they they are in a good position where they don't have to go and fight the boltons if they don't want to it's only once another one of their siblings is in danger uh that they become that they they get into a situation where they have to uh actually we're actually you know action is their only choice if that makes any yeah. sense oh of course it does and it suddenly makes it clear to the audience the significance of Rickon being captured, not just the fact he is captured, but the timing of it. Suddenly it becomes very relevant in this situation, um, along with the timing of Roose Bolton's death, yeah, for example. Well, we also or, see, or, yeah, exactly, the, 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 the Bolton, you know, Roose Bolton would have never let Ramsay send that. Send that letter. No, not at all. And also, in this episode, it's important to note that until that letter arrived, 
Sansa and, and John were still under the impression that Roose Bolton was the Warden of the North. Mm-hmm. So clearly, the message hasn't quite and quite gotten out to everyone at all. So it, it's interesting how that letter suddenly changes things, you know, not just the perspective of it, but the reality of the situation becomes clear to everyone in the sense that, you know, not only has the Boltons got Rickon, but it's, you know, Rickon's been captured by a madman who we'll talk about a little bit later in this episode, is shown to be a, a bit of a mass-murdering sadist. So, you know, I I think there is reason for alarm, to be honest, if I was uh, um, a member of the Stark family, that's for sure. And before we carry on to the whole letter saga, because before we get on to that, I, I, will, I will want to touch about the Ramsey scene to give a bit of context, but there's just one more scene in the wall before we talk about Ramsey. And... This is the scene between Sir Davos and Melisandre and Brienne. I actually really enjoyed this scene. It was only a small snippet, but it was part of a resolution, I think, between what happened with the Renly and Stannis situation. It was a kind of a Baratheon dynasty resolution with characters who weren't actually Baratheons. But there you go. So we obviously have... Davos and Melisandre kind of talking about what their plans are after Melisandre making it clear she is a follower of Jon Snow now. She goes wherever he goes because he's apparently the prince that was promised. But then, of course, as they're talking, Brienne walks in and uh, uh, reveals the fact that she was part of Renly Baratheon's guard, tells them that she knows how he died and also informs them that she was the one that executed Stannis. Um, at the same time, you know, Davos is still trying to talk to Melisandre about what actually happened. So there's some resolution. There's also not some resolution. What did you make of that whole scene? And where do you see the dynamics progressing between those three characters? Do you think there's going to be some sort of animosity that really develops between them? Or do you think this was more just kind of this was a storyline in season five and the writers were thinking we better just kind of resolve this in this scene and then we'll move on. Uh, You know, that is a very interesting dynamic because everybody in that scene has reason to dislike the other, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, Brienne obviously doesn't like, doesn't like either of them because they were, uh, followers of Stannis, where she followed Renly. Davos, if he ever finds out about Shireen, which, you know, how long can Melisandre carry around that secret? That's a, that's a question, uh, that needs answering at some point. I, I, I think she's gonna hold on to that, to that for at least the rest of this season. I don't think, I don't think they can resolve that, uh, partially because Melisandre needs to see Arya one more time, but, uh, you know, she tells her in season three that she'll see her again. But, but you do think there's significance to the fact that, but, uh, but I, I, you know, Sadavos is highlighting yeah. the machine death that it will be revealed at some point. At some point it will be revealed and how that is handled um, will be interesting. We'll have to, I, I don't, I'm not sure how they can handle it. I mean, they, like I said, they set up the, this uh, eventual reunion between Melisandre and Arya and yet, we're in a situation. Excuse me. Uh, we're in a situation where, you know, Arya's on the other side of the world. She's really removed from everything, and and Melisandre's in a place where 
if she reveals the truth about why she came back to Castle Black at just the right moment to resurrect Jon Snow, then, yeah, she has to reveal that she basically murdered a child for no reason. And, you know, Jon Snow, Davos, you know, these honorable people, Brienne, um, even Sansa, you know, they can't let someone like that live, really. So you're they're in a bit of a bind. That's a bit of a knot that needs to be untangled. But yeah, I, I do think that they. I, I don't think that this this was really resolution. I think it's setting up tensions to come between these characters, uh, between the three of them, and, and ultimately, at the very least, um, Davos and Brienne are going to have to put put aside their differences to serve um, John and eventually Danny in the uh, in the wars to come. I think that's that's my prediction at least. Yeah, and it was interesting because Stannis was actually one talking about this idea that you know, this happened in the past when Brienne was talking about the the death of Renly. It almost seemed a little bit hypocritical, really, of him to say that, really. If you consider how much he's been pressing the, the Shireen issue. Yes, I realise Shireen issue was a little bit you know, later than what happened with, with Renly, but, you know... He's trying to press someone about an injustice that they may well have committed, i.e. he's pressing Melisandre about Shireen. But Brienne's also saying the same about them and saying, well, look, this black magic that was used to assassinate Renly, I was there. I was accused, and the person who I loved and followed is dead as a result of someone's actions. And whether Davos likes it or not, he was a part of that. Yeah. Yes, okay, Melisandre was the one that gave birth to it. Sure. But he was the one who took Melisandre to the place, the special <laughs> cave or whatever, yeah. secretly, where the child was born, and then from that location was able to then travel and kill Renly. So, you know, Stannis may... Sorry, Davos may not like it, but I feel like he... He probably feels a, an element of guilt as well, which is why he said, oh, well, you know, that was in yeah. the past, to try and just move away from it. But as you say, I agree. I think it is kind of setting up tensions in in the future. Be interested to see how much of an impact it will have on the battle at Winterfell. But I would say if it was to have an impact, it would have an impact sooner rather than later because you could argue Winterfell is more of a quote-unquote um, not it's a bit derogatory, a petty fight compared to the big fight against the White Walkers. If that makes sense, I mean, yeah. when the White Walkers come, everyone will be united, no matter what happens. <laughs> but the, the the Winterfell is more like a battle between houses, and technically, Ser Davos and Brienne aren't a part of those houses well, who are fighting against well, each other. Well, no, Brienne is. They're, 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 Brienne is. Well, she, yeah, she, Brienne she, she is she swore sort her, of, her but sword. she's not really a Stark. No, but she did swear her sword to, to Sansa, so she, she's... By the, by the rules of this, of the, of the world of Game of Thrones, of Westeros, then she is, uh, you know, bound to that house. Yeah, okay, that's... But I know where you're coming from. I know where you're coming from. Yeah, well, Davos and Melisandre certainly aren't. Right. Anyway, so we will move on then to the Ramsey storyline briefly because I think it fits into what we're talking about with the North here and it gives us a bit more context with the um, with the Bolton situation. So 
They go back to Winterfell. And Osha is brought before Ramsay whilst Rickon is detained in a dungeon somewhere. I mean, we believe that. I hope that's the case. I mean, nothing else has happened to him. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> so Ramsay, from the outset, it looks like he wants Osha for two purposes. Number one, to kind of get information from her. But number two, to also get involved in some sort of, you know, sexual relationship. And Osha tries to use the sexual side to her advantage. Ends up being a bit of a fail. Um, and and instead of her ending up to kill Ramsay, and we know that she's already had loyalty to the Stark, so everything she's doing with Ramsay is just a pretense, really. She doesn't seduce him because she cares about him or anything. She did the same with Theon Greyjoy. But... At any point in that scene, did you think that, oh, Osha's actually going to do this? Or do you think it was all a bit contrived and a, and a bit well, obvious that she wasn't going to get out of there alive? Yeah, it was, it was contrived. There was, there was no way that, I mean, there's no way that that's how this character was going to go out. You know, R- Ramsay Bolton to be killed by Asha, who we haven't seen for several seasons apart from, you know, a brief cameo two weeks ago with when, when Rickon was returned, there was no way that's how it was going to uh, Ramsey Bolton was going to end. And, and in a way that scene was kind of perfunctory because they just had, they just had to get rid of Asha. You know, she couldn't be around. They had to, you know, she, they had to isolate Rickon in the most, um, in every way possible, you know, the same way that Sansa had to be isolated uh, the same way Theon had to be, you know, it, it, these characters, they don't get, you know, that's part of this part of Ramsey's cruelty is to, you know, get rid of everybody ar- around them, uh, around these characters that, that cares about them and that would be willing to help them. And so uh, uh, Osha, Asha, however her name is pronounced, uh, was just Tonks, Tonks from Harry Potter um, was was just another, um, you know, just another one that had to go. And, and you know, it, you know, she like you said, she tried the Theon trick, and it's kind of a fool me once, shame on, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And I, I know it wasn't Ramsay who who was fooled twice, but in in the in the audience, in terms of the, the audience, practice, yeah, yeah, the practice, and it didn't, it just didn't work the second time, and she had to go, and which is unfortunate. I, I liked that character. I thought she was, I thought she was good. I would have liked to have seen. You know, more adventures with her. I liked it when, when she was with Bran and, and Rickon and and Jojen and Mira and, and all that. I thought that was an interesting storyline. But you know, she'd been gone a long time, uh, and you know, I guess they just didn't have a, a place for her in the story going forward. And so she was just uh, the latest victim of, of Ramsay Bolton. Yeah, so, I guess the final point about this: were you a little bit disappointed that? In a sense, Osha, Osha, however you pronounce her name, was brought back for a couple of scenes in season six, so we really didn't get to see any sort of character development. And I've listened to a couple of podcasts and read a couple of reviews about the fact that some people felt it was almost unjust how our, how our ending came about. And I guess, I, from my perspective, I would say this is the world of Game of Thrones. Nothing is necessarily fair and just, but do you think almost her character was underused? 
Uh, sure. Yeah, I would say she's underused. And, and you know, I, I know what you're saying about it. it's the Game of Thrones world. It's not fair and just. Uh, but I think, well, when people are saying she was underused, that was more in a, a storytelling sense, not in the in-world sense, in a more of an out, out-of-universe sense, that, that, that this was a character that was built up a lot over... I, she was in... Was she, how long... When did, when did Bran split from Rickon? Season so that was episode nine, season three. Okay, so she they built her up over three seasons. She was a, a pretty important character in, in the youngest Stark's uh, lives. And, and so I feel like they, they probably could have come up with a better way to to end her character. But like I said, they had to get rid of her for for the sake of, um, you know, isolating Rickon. And as a result, you know, they didn't have a time. They didn't have the, the time to really build up a a good storyline for her um, or they would have had to have taken away from some of the other stuff that they're doing now. If they wanted to cancel all of Dorne and, and just do this and, and do do the Asha <laughs> story instead, then I'm okay with that. But uh, but Dorne hasn't been in the, the series since, since uh, the this season premiere, so it's not like we're in a it's not like we're being overwhelmed by Dorne storylines. Uh, but it is, uh, a, it is a situation where I, I would have liked to have seen more of this character Unfortunately, it just you know the confines of of, uh, of television meant that we we couldn't you know maybe maybe she'll get a more satisfying end in the books um, you know when you have not when you're writing a novel you have a little bit more space you have a little bit more of a chance to do some stuff with with char- interest with interesting characters and and maybe George Martin has a has a better uh, has a has a better storyline in in mind uh, or a, or one that's more suited to a to a book. Yeah, I agree in the sense that, you know, o- Osha, I feel like she did play her part. And as you say, sadly, her character almost became a MacGuffin of a storyline between Ramsay and the Starks. You know, she was kind of this character that was more an object in this game rather than actually a person in, in, in a sense that, she could be expended pretty quickly and it wouldn't do too much to necessarily, you know, damage the story. I kind of just, it just furthered this perception. We have a Ramsey being who Ramsey is and it kind of, as you say, isolated Rickon. So it served a purpose to the storyline, but let's go back then to finish off with the wall stuff. With the um, with the letter that John Sansa, Giant Spain, and and Brienne, and goodness me, I don't know what's going to go on between those two characters. By the way, just that's just a yeah, little side note. But yeah. some interesting looks were given, weren't they, Dominic? Between oh, those yeah. two characters, <laughs> why but... not? Why not? Just that that would be. Just why not? <laughs> you know, why not? Tormund is loyal to John. Um, Brianna's loyal to Sansa. Why not? Just, just, just go for it. Yeah, that's true. They're At least it's the, not incestual. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not. It's not Cersei and Jaime incestuous. Incestuous. So, yeah. um, but who knows? We may see more of that later. But the more important point with this scene was the letter that John received, and it was talking about what Ramsay had to say to John. Um, and Ramsay was saying to John, you need to give my bride back, i.e. 
Sansa Stark as I am you know, Warden of the North and if you don't then I'm going to slaughter all of your wildling friends I'm going to kill Rickon I'm going to have my men rape Sansa and I'm going to scoop your eyeballs out with a spoon or something to that effect anyway I mean it's not a very nice letter it's, but it's, it's it's up there for like among the top five worst letters ever received by anybody. yeah probably i mean if any of us received that i would probably crap my pants but anyway <laughs> at the very <laughs> least <laughs> yeah just a little bit um but what does this mean now for for john and sansa obviously sansa was was very much convincing john in this in this whole episode really to kind of join the fight and it looks as though that john at the end, kind of nodded his head in approval, but I mean, because we can look at the Ramsey thing, and you know, we know this is what Ramsey does. But what do you think this now means for Sansa and John? You know, where do they progress on from here? And I'm going to try and get you to answer that question without talking about the Vale, because I want to come oh. on to that next. <laughs> well, I'll just say this: I mean, they need a, they need an army. They need an army. Yeah. A, you know, a conservative estimate is five thousand Bolton men, and you know, a, probably a pretty um, a, a two thousand Tormund said. Yeah, Tormund, and that's probably like stretching it a little bit. Is is at two thousand? So, you know, the odds are not good. So they need more soldiers, and there's probably maybe about thirty five dudes at Castle Black at this point. And how many of them are actually loyal to John? Uh, that's the question that needs to be raised. Mm. Um, you know, we saw a few weeks ago the division between, you know, those who were defending his body and those who wanted to take it. Um, so you're not in a situation where, where the, the, the Night's Watch can really be of any assistance at all to anybody in anything. Like they could maybe stop like a purse snatcher or something. Like that's, that's what they've devolved that's to. That's pushing it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they've devolved to. So. Uh, they need an army, and if only they knew somebody who owed them a favor. Yeah, and to be honest, the interesting thing was... a big that, favor that, that, at that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we'll come on to that very shortly. But the the thing is, the estimation they had of the 5,000 men was based on what Sansa said when she was there at Winterfell. But obviously, I haven't taken into account that the Karstarks have joined them. The Umbers have also joined the Boltons. Yeah. It may well be more than 5,000 could be quite quite a substantial force now, I have to say. So I, I just wonder whether, at the very least, this kind of estimation of 5,000 may work a little bit against um, John well, and Sansa's forces, initially at least. The other, when, the other thing to keep in mind, though, is um, you know Sansa says maybe they can unite some of the northern houses. There are still... Yeah. Northern houses, you have to think, who are loyal to Ned Stark, and and if his son came around saying, "Look, the guy who's in charge of Winterfell now is literally insane, and 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 you know is is probably one of the worst human beings on the planet," I need your men to fight. You know, some of them might still be a bit burned by Rob and the War of the Five Kings. Um, you well, know, clearly, cost dogs. Yeah, and a lot of those armies are probably not what they once were, again, because of the War of the Five Kings. But mm. they might be able to raise up maybe another thousand men, so you get 2,000 between those two. And then, 
you needed that guy who owes you that favor, that really big favor, because he left you somewhere awful and, and had awful, awful things happen to you. <laughs> yeah, that is true. So let's let's get to it then. Let's get to the thing that will probably make clear to all of us, including the audience, what's going to happen next. Let's go to the veil. And you know, Dominic, as well as I, that Littlefinger is is one of my favorite characters on Game of Thrones. He's not the nicest person in Game of Thrones, not at all, but he's one of the most intriguing and probably one of the, one of the smartest. Um, and in this scene, we see Peter Baelish um, coming back to Runestone is the place where Robin Arryn is being trained by Lord Royce. And Baelish comes back and informs the, you know, the forces there, including Lord Royce, that Sansa Stark was taken by the Boltons on Littlefinger's travel to the Fingers, which is what he told Lord Royce. And, you know, Lord Royce sees through this, and we know this isn't true. But, of course, nobody else really does, in universe sense at least. So Lord Royce kind of says Peter, Peter's lying, he accuses him of that. And then Peter accuses Royce of being the one to feed the information about the fact that Fing- Littlefinger was travelling to the Fingers, uh, to the Boltons. So you have a bit of a confrontation here. And it's interesting to see that Littlefinger really comes out on top. Of course, it's not Littlefinger's decision. It's the decision of Robin Aaron, who clearly is not the most you know, sane of people <laughs> in this particular world. Yeah, yeah. But, I That's mean, I want to ask you a couple of questions. I mean, number one, does this whole scene that we see here show that Peter knows how to play Robin? And number two, um, why did Littlefinger let Lord Royce live? Because clearly in this scene... At the beginning, at least, it seems like he's pushing Royce to the to this moon door. Basically, you know, it, if Royce was say a good fifteen meters from the moon door at the start of the scene, he was a good two meters from it by the time Lord Baelish had dealt with him at the beginning. You know, yeah. Robin was like, "Yeah, put him through the moon door." So, you know, number one, I guess perhaps some more entwined, but you know, why is it that? Lord Baelish wanted Royce to live then if Royce was going to continuously accuse Baelish of being a facade, really. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, obviously Littlefinger knows how to play Robin Aaron. I mean, I think anybody would know how to how to how to manipulate Robin Aaron. But by that same token, you know, we know that Littlefinger is an expert manipulator and what he does best is making people think stuff was their own decision when really it wasn't. Uh, when really it was his decision, it was his idea. Do you think the Pet Falcon played anything into this? A little bit, just kind of to bribe him into feeling and being in a good mood. You know, he doesn't want to deal with him when he's in a <laughs> bad mood. Um, but as for as for why he wanted to keep uh, Lord Royce around, I, I think that is maybe one of those situations where there's no real need to kill Lord Royce, and if anything, you know, killing him might hinder. A little finger, a little, a little bit. You know, he he needs the Knights of the Vale to march north to join up with John and Sansa and the Wildlings and and any other men that they can round up to fight Ramsay Bolton to to avenge what happened. Uh, 
and uh and, and so you know lord um lord what's his face um lord royce. royce yeah um you know maybe he's one of the guys who's who's in charge of of leading the the knights of the veil maybe he he has some kind of he he he'll help convince them of the legitimacy of this mission so I, I think that's what we're, we're we're dealing with is why he wants to keep him alive. Obviously, he would be able to make it happen if he had to if he had to kill Lord Royce. But he um, ultimately knows it would probably be easier if, if he was around. So he uh, decided to to keep him alive. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, it seemed as though what Lord, Be- <laughs> Lord Baelish was talking about was this idea that Lord Royce was a, an experienced commander. And that he would be a useful asset, really, in the wars to come. A war in which it looks like the Vale are, are very much going to get involved in. And, um, and, you know, speculation now will certainly be generated about what's going to happen with the Vale and, and the allegiances with Sansa and John, etc. Just one final question, though, Dominic, about this. Do you think the manner in which Littlefinger treated Royce in this scene will come back to bite him at any point. Because in spite of the fact that Lord Royce proclaimed absolute loyalty, was that really loyalty to Littlefinger or just loyalty to the dynasty or the House of Arryn? Um, I don't, I don't think, um, you know, maybe... Or do you think that really just cemented the fact that Royce is now going to not do anything? Yeah, I so think... So kind of I, I think, Lord Baelish? Well, that's, I think... Um, Royce knows the kind of man that Baelish is and that, you know, it's probably for the best, um, to, uh, to, to not to, not to, uh, uh, to challenge him. I don't think, I don't think Lord Royce is going to play any real part in, um, in Littlefinger's downfall. Um, I ultimately, I think that's going to come from somewhere else. I think, well, Sansa, I think is, is going to be the one to ultimately kill him. But that's uh, that's neither here nor there at this point. Maybe I could maybe see the the Knights of the Vale turning on him, but really they are going up to fight. They're they're going up to fight for the right side. It's not like he's he's going to send them to fight for the Lannisters. He's sending them to fight the Boltons. He, you know they they are the good guys in this situation. They're fighting for the good guys. They're fighting for John and Sansa and and and, and Tormund and, and 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 the good guys. They're not fighting for. Um, Tywin Lannister or Ramsay Bolton. So, uh, you know, it, it, even if he may not trust Littlefinger, this is still a just fight. And, and, and so I, I don't, I don't expect this to be, um, hugely, uh, impactful on, on, on either character's future. Um, other than, you know, maybe one of them dies in the battle kind of thing. Yeah, I agree. I think it was interesting though, wasn't it, to kind of see, in a way, Bailey, the, the whole Royce situation, it kind of reminded audiences about the power of manipulation that Peter Baelish really possesses. But it also shows that Peter is really unchallenged in this situation. Even Lord Royce, who at one point had the power really to have Lord Baelish executed after the whole you know, Lysa Aaron situation until Sansa obviously came to Peter Baelish's aid. Now, Royce is in no position to challenge him. And if he does so, he's going to be thrown through that moon door or he'll just be stabbed, whatever. Basically, he knows that if he wants to keep himself alive, 
he has to do what he's told. But be interested to see what happens next. And um, obviously, we've got the prediction section coming up at the end, and there's a there's a little preview which involves Peter Baelish. So, but we will we will talk about that a little bit later. So let's move on now to Marie, and we'll, we'll I think we'll come on to. Um, Actually, no. Let's not go into Marine just yet. I kind of always seem like I'm making this up as I go along, Dominic. But um, let's go to the Iron Islands, actually. Um, and we'll stick. We'll stick in the north. So, do you remember that, that theory I had, Dominic, about when I said Theon Greyjoy returning home was going to, you know, be to Winterfell? Um, can I cross that off my list now of theories <laughs> which are clearly wrong? Because. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we see in this episode that Fionn Greyjoy returns to Pike, yep. which is, is is his birth home, where he was born and where he was raised. Well, for a time, and then he was obviously raised by, by the Starks. Mm-hmm. Um, he returns back home to his sister Yara. Now, number one, why do you think he does that? Why? Because as we see in this scene, Yes, Fionn knows that Bayonon Greyjoy has died, but only when he arrives at Pike. Um, so I'll ask you that first. Why do you think he's why why is he returned to Pike? Yeah, it's 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 an interesting question. Why why there? Why there of all places? I guess that's maybe a situation where he feels he has nowhere else to go. You know, he can't face John. He can't face John and, and maybe you know, he wants to go around and, and atone for what he's done and, and, and try to make it up to the, all the people that he's wronged. And perhaps he feels that that's one of the places he can start because um, among the people he wronged were his father and his sister, Yara and Balon. So maybe that's somewhere he can start. And, and if that goes well and he can maybe regain a little bit of himself, he can then throw himself at, at John and, and beg forgiveness. Um, but you know, I, I think like we, you know, I think you know, Theon always has been a, a bit of a, a, a bit of a coward in, in ways, you know, and in, in not in, not not necessarily in, he's unwilling to to fight, but he's never possessed the same honor that Rob or John or, or Ned has. You know, he he has some of those qualities. I think he understands the difference between right and wrong, but he doesn't always um, he doesn't always obey that, as we saw. Um, throughout, as we as we've seen throughout the early season, or as we saw throughout the early seasons of the series, um, and, and so I think you know maybe he he views uh, Pike as as a place he can go where he can begin to make amends, and and he can and one of the ways he can do that is by supporting uh, Yara and the King's Moot. King Smoot, King Smoot. Yeah, that, that, absolutely. That, that's that. That's that British word again that I can't say, and it sounds even worse. King Smoot. Yeah, it sounds even worse when I'm sick. It's like it's like the, <laughs> the Canadian accent combined with the the sick voice means no British words for me. We'll give you points for trying. Though. We'll give you <laughs> points for trying. Um, so the final question about this scene is a very short scene, and I feel like it's the subject matter of this scene will be expanded on next episode, but. Theon supporting Yara. Was that a surprise to you? Um, uh, and yes and, and no. Does, does, that, does that make Theon seem a bit more of a redeemable character? Uh, yes and no. I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's not a surprise that, you know, once he 
finds out that this is happening, he he would support her again. Maybe not even because he necessarily thinks she's the best candidate, although I think we'll find that she probably she probably is. Um, and then um, I think he was going back there to try and make amends, and so this is just a, 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 a convenient uh, starting place for him. This, this is a place where he can say, "Okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and." make up to you for everything that I've done wrong to, to you and to, to our father and to our family and, 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 and eventually to, to John and, and, and Rob and, and, and Ned and, and Catelyn and, and everybody. And, and I will begin to make amends and, and for everything. And even to the realm, I mean, Theon, Theon really fucked everybody over with some of his, with some of his antics. I mean, let's be real. So I, I think, uh, yeah, it's not really a surprise. I'll say that. Yeah, I agree with you. I think Yara was the one person that actually cared for Theon. And although she was very angry with him in this scene, I feel like you could tell there were kind of holes and, and, and weaknesses in in her indignation towards Theon. Eventually, she started, I think, to kind of well, it's it's kind of similar. I kind of sympathize a little bit with him. It's kind of similar to what we were talking about with um, John and Sansa, right? You know, even though they can be angry with each other, they can be horrible. They can treat each other very, very badly. Um, ultimately, they are brother and sister, and and they do have mm. this this deep uh, bond that you know it's it's probably you know it's to to paint all families that with that same brush is is not fair i mean even just looking in universe at, at the lannisters and the way tywin treats tyrion and 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 all that but i i think that it's it's absolutely true of the starks that that's how things work and i think maybe that's something that that um that that Theon learned and and it's something that Yara clearly believes. So it, you know, at, at the very least, it's a similar situation where you have two characters who have similar um, beliefs to uh, you know or uh, feelings towards family as uh, John and Sansa. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. As you said, this kind of unconditional love dimension to it certainly existed in this scene. And initially, I said we were going to go to Marine, but. As I'm in this mood of changing things around, I'm going to change it around again. And instead of going east, we're going to go down south and we're going to go to King's Landing next. So um, we won't get on to the interesting relationship between Jamie and Cersei in this episode, fortunately, because that's not highlighted. Um, instead, we're going to start off by looking at the interaction between Marjorie Tyrell and the High Sparrow which was the first scene that we see here in King's Landing. So there's a private meeting between the two characters, Marjorie and High Sparrow. And the High Sparrow asks, you know, about what Marjorie's intentions are about seeing her family. And he kind of, you know, he kind of pronounces to Marjorie that her attempts to see her family are a sin. And he then tells about a story in his youth when he was a womanizer and, and a bit of a drunkard. I mean, in that whole scene of him telling her that he was this womanizer, 
Eiser and drunkard and eventually he turned his life around became a devoted member of the faith of the seven because he perceived his his, his life as kind of meaningless in terms of existence uh, i mean did you really believe that as a personality the high sparrow has changed in terms of his ambitions not to say about the womanizer and drunkard sense but this idea that at one time he did have some level of power and uh, you know he kind of talks about this idea of you know he felt this kind of ceaseless um admiration almost to him because he had all of the you know, these women or whatever to kind of give around you know do you think the power is his ultimate goal or do you think he really became a devoted member of this faith of the seven both <laughs> i i think he is devoted to his faith in the most extreme forms and that ha- and and that includes spreading it to people even if they don't want it and and in that sense he's after power and and he intends to topple a he intends to topple the monarchy that pays lip service to this faith but doesn't actually follow any of its rules as, as he sees them and that's why cersei was in prison that's why marjorie's in prison that's why um uh, sir loris is in prison it you know in in his eyes they're all sinners and and and, and they they deserve to to pay and uh as a as a result um and, and 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 in doing so i think he wants to both uh show the people that you know even the uh you know, even the most powerful are not safe uh, from sin or from being called out on their sins. Uh, but also to remove these po- powerful people who are sinning and, and replace them with another system, uh, a, 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 the- a theocracy, where the, the church rules all and imposes its its will as law. There is no separation of church and state. Um and and, and te- technically, I guess in in Game of Thrones, there 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 is and there isn't. You know, the the faith still is an important aspect of the of the monarchy of of their society. You know, as Cersei says, they're the two pillars, but it's it's not. They they don't necessarily make their laws de- de- decided by by um, the strict rules of the of the the book of the of the Light of the Seven. So. Yeah, I think he's after power, but I do also think he is very much a, um, very much faith. Uh, it's a faith-based power, if you know what I mean. Uh, n- yeah. Not not a faith-based power in the resurrecting someone. You know, it's a, a different <laughs> a different kind of faith-based power. But I, I do want to say, I, you know, Jonathan Price as the High Sparrow. I mean, that guy can act. I mean, that 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 the the way he he sells these scenes so so well as this character, and and you know, whenever he's speaking. You almost you look at him. You almost go, yeah, he's kind of right. You know, he he is right. He he he's doing. He he's he's right to call these people out on on all this stuff that they've been doing that is causing so much pain. And, and you know, when Marjorie says, you know, I want to go back to friends and family and 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 all this stuff, and he's right. No, you want to go back to money. You want to go back to your your wonderful life where you're you you live in this lavish palace and you're the queen and you rule everybody. And, and, you know, he's, he's right about all of this stuff. It's just, 
he's the way he it's the fact that he's also wrong about so many other things about um you know the way he punishes people and what some of these sins are you know he's obviously sir sir loris is 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 locked up for a, a quote-unquote sin that you know in our, our our society today is not uh you know i mean there's still still assholes that don't accept it but they're but it's, it's becoming more and more just yeah that's that's how that's how it is that that gay people exist that's how it is and 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 so you know it's it is like a it's not it's not viewed as a it's not illegal anymore the the way that the 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 high sparrow wants it to be and and so you know he's right about like he's like right about 50 percent of things and wrong about 50 percent of things and the unfortunate thing is He's the when he's wrong about something, he's really wrong about it, and he will fight you for over it with, um, you know, with that army of sparrows. Absolutely, and I think is just looking at the scene is always interesting, as you say, when the high sparrow is involved, because we've never actually seen a scene in Game of Thrones from his perspective, from his own point of view, where you know we never really had. I like, I like kind of sometimes comparing him to say a Palpatine because in uh, there was a couple of scenes say in the TV show Star Wars: The Clone Wars where we would see a scene from Palpatine's perspective about how he kind of viewed things and then we really see how malevolent and evil he is. But with the High Sparrow, we never really had that. We've seen him interacting with other characters and kind of chastising them for their sins. But we've also, all, in a way, whilst we don't trust him. As you say, we can sometimes agree with what he's saying because we've seen what the other characters have done and thought, well, you know, you're no holier-than-thou people than, than the High Sparrow proclaims himself to be. So it would be interesting to see what happens with the High Sparrow, what his fate is going to be, because something will happen to him eventually, but what is going to happen to him and how is it going to happen to him? That's the interest. But the other point you mentioned, Dominic, was about this idea of family and about the fact that Marjorie doesn't necessarily want to see her family but wants to go back to the riches of her life. So it's interesting then that the High Sparrow lets Marjorie go to see Loras. Loras, who is in a cell, clearly has no money at this point and is a shadow of his former self. He's unconfident. He's been tortured. He's... He looks extremely rough, at least from a uh, visual and a physical perspective. Uh, what did you make of the whole scene between Loris and Marjorie? Because I thought it was very intriguing, particularly to look at the way that Marjorie, compared to maybe Cersei, you could argue, in, even though he perceived Cersei as a strong character, really showed her, her qualities, I think. Um at least in terms of her strength and her determination to follow through her ambitions of maintaining power. Yeah, I mean, um, Loras has always been um, Marjorie's like soft spot. You know, she she he is. You know, she truly cares for him. You know, you know that that is the one place where the High Sparrow is kind of wrong. That. You know, yeah, maybe she does want to return to her lavish, luxurious lifestyle, but she does 
truly care for Loras and, and, and want what's best for him. And, and, you know, she is ultimately, you know, she, she doesn't want to just be released. She wants him to be released and she wants them to be released together, together so that they can, they can, they can, um, uh, you know, return to their lives as they were, um, and be reunited and be safe together. And, um, I think, you know, she's showing a lot of strength by saying, yeah, you know, this, we need to, we need to stay the course. We can't take the, um, the quick and easy path, you know, to go with the Star Wars quote. Um, because, I mean, that's kind of what Cersei did. Not that what Cersei went through was easy, but she was able to get out of prison and return to her normal life. But a lot of, a lot of what she built and what she was working towards, you know, was, torn away when she had to do that walk you know everything that she had built was kind of you know she she's no, no longer what little respect the people had for her they have even less now they do not respect her at all um in the way that uh that she's uh, after after what happened you know and, and and marjorie knows this and as we'll get to i'm sure um uh, Olena knows this, and, and and everybody knows that once they do that walk of shame, they're never going to return to the the same status. And like I was saying, Cersei knows that more than others, and so that's why Marjorie is saying to Loras, "You know, look, just stay, stay through this. We will figure something else out. There are people on the outside who are working towards figuring something else out. We just have to be strong enough to get through this." So, yeah, it, you know, she she is a a, a great character. She's always been a little different from most of the other nobles and royals that we see on the show. You know, she's not, she was the one who was willing to go and, and, and meet with the, the children and, and, and feed the, at the, at the orphanages in, in King's Landing and stuff. You know, she's, she's always being, um, you know, where Cersei wanted to be feared, uh, Cersei and, and, and Joffrey and, and people like that want to be feared. Uh, Marjorie wanted to be loved by the people. So, you know, it's it's very different approaches, and and we're seeing that in in a, in a in an interesting way. They're almost saying, you know, love is stronger than than hate or scorn or looking down upon or whatever Cersei does. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the next move of, of Marjorie is and how her next moves are going to be dictated by external forces. So let's let's move on then to what's going on outside of the the highest sparrows temple and let's look at the the cersei talk with king tommen and grand meister picel once again looking to interfere in proceedings and attempt to quote unquote advise the king on are, are kingly su- matters <laughs> excuse me are you surprised he's still alive I'm kind of, oh my I'm kind of shocked. I'm waiting for somebody's going to kill him, or his body's just going to give out. Like one of these days, I'm, I'm kind of shocked. Well, to be fair, his body, he, from the outside, it looks like that. But as he showed again in this scene, as soon as Tommen's back was turned and 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 he, he was walking out that door, you know, kind of walking very slowly initially, just stood up and walked out. Like we know he's a lot healthier than he makes himself out to be, but. Yeah, I agree with you. I think, in my mind, I think he's going to get killed by Robert Strong. I mean, that look that was given by him, uh, by Robert Strong to um, to Pycelle was certainly uh, not not a lovey-dovey one at all. So it'll be interesting to see 
um, higher sales than Myers. Sooner rather than later, I hope. But anyway, nothing against the actor, of course. He's a fantastic actor. We know that because of oh, him in Star Wars Julian, and Indiana Jones, Ju- uh, but yeah, just the character Julian itself. Glover. I mean, what a... I nearly called him Julian Veers. Um, but Julian Glover. Yeah, what a what a talented actor. I mean, uh, Game of Thrones, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, James Bond. Like Not bad. That, Not that's bad. a pretty good resume. That's That's solid. You'd be hard-pressed to find someone with a better. Maybe like Christopher Lee or... Ian McKellen, you know, like people like that. Uh, Meryl Streep, you know. <laughs> better, better than average, I would say. Better than yeah, average. Yeah. Um, but in this scene, Tommen is proposing to Cersei that it's probably within the interest of the Crown not to antagonize the Sparrows because he fears that it would actually endanger Marjorie's life further. What did you make of the interaction between Cersei and Tommen in this scene? And from my perspective, it kind of shows how Cersei, once again, is able to manipulate Tommen. And I think it does show the weaknesses within Tommen here because, you know, one episode we see last week, he's listening to the High Sparrow and he seems like he's going to adhere to what the High Sparrow says. And in this episode, Marjorie presses Tommen and Tommen again betrays the confidence of the High Sparrow and reveals to his mother what he was told not to reveal to anyone. So, I guess in part, not just the interaction between those two characters, but again, Tommen. I mean, do you fear that he's finally going to get manipulated by the wrong person, or he's going to get manipulated to an extent where it's almost impossible to turn back? Um, And, of course, I'm talking about just this scene rather than the next scene we'll talk about where, you know, people then conspire behind Tommen's back, but maybe that's a case in point. Yeah, well, I mean, Tommen's greatest weakness is also kind of his greatest strength in that he doesn't, he's not out there looking for a fight the way that Joffrey was. You know, he wants to, or even the way that Robert was, going back to season one, he wants to find diplomatic solutions. He doesn't want there to be bloodshed on his behalf. And so that makes leads makes him very susceptible to manipulative people like the high sparrow and like cersei lannister who want to um who are willing to use violence and who are using to willing to do what's necessary to uh to get get their way whereas tomlin is is constantly looking for a better and a better the better solution and ultimately he he's just not a strong enough character um, you know, he doesn't have that kind of strength, um, that kind of backbone to uh, to stand up to these people, and and um, and ultimately it it's creates more chaos um, than there would have been if if he was if maybe if even if he was a little bit more decisive and active uh, like his predecessors predecessors he he, he the, his holding off. His um his his way of being allows other people to get manipulative and allows for more potential chaos to emerge. Yeah, I agree. I think it his demeanor works for him and against him. And as you say, the comparison between him and Joffrey, I think, is quite stark, and it's you know interesting to see. How, in a way, Tommen has always been easy to manipulate when you look at the way Tywin tried to kind of indoctrinate certain principles into Tommen as a way of ensuring that Tywin was really the ruler of the realm. 
It's interesting as well to see the contrast between Tywin's role as as ha- Tywin's role as Hand of the King and Kevin Lannister, his brother as Hand of the King, who surprisingly you could argue is also quite easy to persuade. So let's get on to that scene, and I think that's the crucial one of King's Landing. Really, is this kind of plot that's hatched between really Cersei and Elena, to be honest. Although Jamie Lannister and Kevin Lannister are in this scene, they kind of play a more bit part roles, I would say. But you know, in the previous scene with Tommen, Tommen reveals to Cersei about this fact that uh, Cersei's going to have to continue to. Um, atone for her, for her sins and Marjorie's going to have to do the walk of atonement or the walk of shame that Cersei had to go through and in this scene we see that eventually there seems to be some sort of compromise reached between the Tyrells and the Lannisters in which they look to rid themselves of the High Sparrow in a, in a way they want the hand of the King Kevin, that is, to just stand down when um, Cersei proposed the Tyrell army surrounds the Sept and intimidates the Sparrows into releasing Marjorie and Loris, but no blood would be shed. Tommy, by the time he's found out, would be happy with the outcome. Um, I mean, first of all, what did you make of this interaction between the characters? What, what did you think of the dynamics particularly between Cersei and Elena um, as the scene progressed and B do you think this plan that they've concocted is going to be successful yeah it's um it, it's uh I, well I mean the scenes were great the scenes were great um the, the dynamics between those characters is is always um always fantastic I was always always enjoyed that um but I um I, I I feel like this plan I think we're going to get chaos and and it's going to um blow up in uh in the face of uh of every of everybody and it you know it makes you wonder what would happen if Tywin was still around I, obviously the situation probably wouldn't have been allowed to occur but if if it had you you wonder how he would have handled this different differently, you know. Um, Cersei, f- for as um, as great a manipulator as she is, and she is very very good, she is still not quite as experienced as as Tywin, and uh, she doesn't quite have the same experience that he had in terms of planning and, and plotting, and that's partially just due to the the sexism of Westeros that you know she was never given those opportunities; she was always expected to be. A, a proper lady, a proper lady. Yes, quite. Um, and and uh, instead, and and so you wind up with a situation where things look. Where I feel like by the end of this season, King's Landing is going to be burning, and that's what's going to uh, give uh, Daenerys the the um, the inspiration that now is the time to head uh, head west. Is that she'll get word that. Things have just gone to hell in a handbasket there, so uh, I think uh, I, I think uh, it, it's an interesting plan. I'm looking forward to seeing it play out, but I expect it will fail spectacularly. Yeah, and part of me hopes so because it'd be more entertaining from that perspective, not for the characters' oh, sake, yeah. <laughs> but from the audience's perspective. Um, 
Yeah, I, I think stuff is really going to go down in in King's Landing very, very soon. If not next episode, then the episode after. Um, I feel like again, Game of Thrones are kind of setting the scene now. We've gone back to the Tyrells in the cells, so we know where, what their play is, and now we've seen this plot that's been hatched. Um, you know, how's Robert Strong going to fit into all of this? That'll be an interesting question to ask. Um, and another character as well, just to finish on the King's Landing. Um, scene was Lancel Lannister. Of course, we haven't seen him for a good, almost a whole season. But we know he's obviously conformed to the principles of of, of the faith militants and or the faith of the Seven, and he's now um, a faith militant. What do you think is the significance of reminding the audience of Lancel Lannister's existence? Do you think there was anything to it? Do you think it was just a play to Kevin in terms of saying, look, you know, this will be a way to help get your son back? Or do you think something's going to happen to Lancel in the near future? Well, I, I think something's going to happen to him. I'm not sure what. Um, but I, I, I think uh, something will will happen to him. I think it's valid that he... Uh, I think that, that 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 anytime you start hearing a character be mentioned again on the show, it generally means that they're either coming back or that something is going to happen to them. They, you know, that's the 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 writers reminding the audience that this character exists. So I, I do think that he's coming back. I'm not a hundred percent sure what what uh, in what what role that will be. Do you have a theory? Uh. I'm not sure. I mean, the only thing we is we have seen something in the trailer, not the trailer for next episode, the season trailer, which in, involves Lancel Lannister, you know, basically telling the um, the Crown forces to disarm. So it, it, it's clearly shown to the audience that he's going to be on the front lines, Lancel Lannister. That is, is he going to be a casualty? I would almost be shocked if he wasn't. Um, because at the very least, it would kind of blur the lines, I think, between you know the crown and the highest and, and the faith militant, and, and what it shows really um, to to be a part of the faith militant, and and you know that could easily be a spark about another conflict between, say, you know, within the crown sector, because we know that saying Jamie. Yeah, have a bit of a conflict between Elena and Kevin in the sense that you know Kevin is the hand of the king, um, and apparently he, he's supposed to stand down. That's what that's what everyone's been telling him. What if he stands down and then his son dies as a result? Could be an interesting transformation in relations. That's for sure between the Lannisters within their own family. So let's move away from that, and um, we'll talk about Marine next. So Marine, I thought, was quite an interesting scene as well. So we go back with Tyrion Lannister, um, with Grey Worm, Missandei, and Varys, and they meet with the representatives of the good masters of Astapor, the wise masters of Yunkai, and the slave-trading city of Volantis, who've all arrived by sea. So it's a sort of diplomatic mission, and we find out that... Tyrion has brought these masters in to formulate a compromise. He has proposes an offer, or a counter-offer, I should say, to um, the slavers' demands 
which was for uh, Daenerys' forces to leave Marine. Tyrion says he will give them a seven-year grace period to phase out slavery and compensate slave owners. However, they must end all support for the Sons of the Harpy, regardless whether they would admit the fact that they were backing the Sons of Harpy or not. And he warns them they will not get a better offer. This is met with disgruntlement, to say the least, from a number of elitist members of the marine societal hierarchy, um, which include, of course, Missandei and Grey Worm, leader of the Unsullied. Um, first of all, Dominic, what did you make of Tyrion's compromise? And number two, what did you make of the reaction of Tyrion's compromise by Missandei and Grey Worm? Uh, well, I think the, the compromise itself was an interesting one. I'm curious to hear what Danny think, will think of it. Um, but we'll get to that. I'll get I'll get into that in just a second. Um, but to answer your question, I, I mean, the, the obviously Grey Worm and Missandei, they've been slaves. They've been through this horrid, horrid experience that, you know, Tyrion experienced for a couple weeks at most. Um, and, uh, not to diminish that, but, you know, it, it wasn't the years and years and years he wasn't castrated, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't quite the experience that the other two had. And, and so obviously any existence of slavery, allowing slavery to exist is an insult to those two. And it's one that they would take very, very personally. And then they are being asked to defend it on his behalf to other former slaves. And so while Tyrion's plan may make sense logistically and strategically, it's also one that two former slaves, it's not what they wanted. They they wanted just the end of slavery right now, this instant. It's gone. Get out. No more. Done. Uh, and as a result, they, when they didn't get that, they, are, they felt a little bit betrayed and, and that they, this practice was going to be allowed to continue to exist for, for seven more years. So it, it'll, it will be interesting to see the, how those dynamics play out um, as, as the season progresses. And the other thing I'm, I'm interested in is, is how Danny reacts to this because, you know, I thought having Tyrion and, and Varys there was supposed to, you know, be like teaching her this sort of strategy because, you know, she's always been very much all going with my dragons and my army of the Unsullied and that's all I need. Um, but in the, and, and, and in this episode, we kind of see her using her as they describe it in the, um, inside the episode, uh, her superpower and, and, you know, she just like, gets everybody's attention and, and gets everybody to swear allegiance to her in that instant, which is kind of the opposite of what Tyrion was doing, which her Tyrion was playing sort of a longer game and trying to get the result he wanted after a, a lengthy period of time. And so those two, those two moments are done in this, basically done for the same person, Danny. Um, but they're kind of the, 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 the kind of the polar opposites of ways to get things done. You know, Tyrion is a, it's a very methodical, it's a long process, it takes time. Whereas Danny's like, no, you know what? I'm just gonna set this place on fire and show everybody that I'm fireproof and stand naked in front of everybody and have them all bow to me. Uh, it, it's a, it will be interesting to see how these two methods meld together because you know, we, we know that Tyrion is capable of playing the game. We saw that in season two. Um, and we see that in this episode. 
but we also know that Danny wants to break the wheel. And, and so you get these, these clashing ideals and, and, you know, Tyrion is better suited to the wheel almost than, whereas Dan, which Danny wants to break. And so I, you know, Tyrion hasn't had all that much to do this season. We've really been checking in with him, uh, this year. And, and really this was the first episode where he had something of substance to do. And, and so as a result, I think it's created some, it will create some friction. We'll have to see how moving forward Danny is able to find some kind of balance between these longer, longer plays, which Tyrion is good at and have their place, I'm sure, in her, in her rule. Um, but also these more spectacular moments of, I'm just going to change everything like that. Hmm. I think it's a lesson that Danny needs to learn. This idea of compromise, and I think you highlighted it very well about the fact that sometimes Danny's perspective on the world is, is to just use force. Now she has an army. Um, it doesn't always work. And, and this idea of removing a system which has been put in place, i.e. slavery, but just leaving a vacuum and not replacing it with a new system is a major issue and I think she needs to learn that there has to be some sort of transition period. Yes, you can knock down the walls of a city but you can't just expect everything to carry on the way it was um, and just be like, yeah, well, you're all free now. You know, what about trade? What about properties? What about um, jobs? You know, what does it mean for all of these people who are living there? Um, and I think it's something that Tyrion understands a lot more but It'll be interesting to see what happens with Tyrion throughout the rest of the season because clearly this is a, um, a controversial decision. You know, seven years is, seems a long time, and it is a long time, particularly if you're a slave. Um, you know, will it last that long? Uh, and what, what about what, what's going on with Danny's actions? You know, will, will they have an impact on uh, Tyrion's new policy? Which, by the way, he claimed was Danny's policy not his own so you know if danny comes back are people going to be upset with her as much as Tyrion? be interested to find out um but there's still always the question of the dragons if shit goes down yeah. <laughs> down the pipe drain um all right let's move on to the very final kind of section which kind of interlinks with each other that's uh, dario jorah and danny's story so let's start off with dario and jorah then Dario finds out about Jorah's affliction or or, or grayscale infection uh, before they actually enter the home of the Dothrak. Um, and, and Jorah obviously assures them, uh, uh, assures Dar- um, Dario that is that he hasn't actually passed the contagion on. What do you think is significance of this scene now? Now that Dario has found out Jorah has grayscale, will it be kept a secret or? Is this information finally going to come out in the open? Well, it always had. It always had to come out in the open. Um, you know it, that that was not something he could hide forever. And so Dario, no, Dario, well, well, what is the significance that Dario finds out? Yeah, first? well, I think the fact that he finds out means that he he will be pushing Jora to tell Danny as soon as possible. Um, and, and the question is whether Dario respects Jora enough to let him tell her on his own or whether he's just going to 
up and tell her himself. And I, I, I wonder, I, I, I wonder what the, uh, where that's going. I, I don't, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't have that good a read on, on Dario's character. He's always been kind of mysterious and, uh, in that way. And so I, 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 I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. <laughs> well, it'll be interesting to find out. I, I predict that it, yeah, Dario's going to reveal it at a very, very bad time. Yeah. <laughs> for Jora. You know, I feel like when things go down for him, things are going to get worse and worse. Um, but I, I'm just curious to know the timing of when Dario tells Daenerys. You know, how far down the line? Because there was an instance in this episode where I thought that uh, Jorah's skate, grayscale would actually come into action when he was fighting the Dothraki. I thought, oh, he's going to kind of unleash some sort of s- almost like secret power that he has. Now he's now he's got this infection, you know, whether he'd be like super strong almost, a bit like the Hulk. But no, that, that didn't come into fruition at all. So, um, But either way, you know, how long is it going to take before this information finally gets out? Um I, for me, I, I fear that Jorah may not last the season. I hope he does, but oh, I, I just have this very bad feeling that his end is coming very, very soon. Um, but anyway, interesting to see that whole storyline and, and what happens with that. Mm-hmm. So the final bit then to talk about with this whole episode is, is Danny's storyline. Um, and, and please, if you have anything other to add, Dominic, anything else to add, you're welcome to do so. But... Um, Let's just talk about that big scene. I mean, we could talk about the whole, you know, Dosh Colleen stuff, but I don't think it's that important. We talked about it last last episode. So we see that Danny goes into the um, the tent of the, uh, the the Carls of the Dothraki, and they're kind of there deciding what Danny's fate's going to be. You know, and Danny kind of, while she's listening to them saying, well, you know. We could leave, let her stay, but she uses black magic. She could just be raped, blah, blah, blah. Eventually, Daenerys says, well, you're all weak and petty, talking about, you know, crossing the sea, wooden horse, uh, you know, sorry, talking about, um, you know, spending money on a horse or taking horses and, and, and selling stuff or whatever, uh, selling slaves. And she's just like, really? Is that all? Is that your the level of your ambitions? You know, my Carl Carl Drogo is willing to cross the sea in wooden horses for conquests. Um, what are you, what are you capable of? And then they did, obviously didn't like that, um, and, and said that she was just going to be passed around and, and raped. And then she kills them all uh, by pouring fire on into the tent, and she ordered Dario. And uh, Jorah, who managed to find her earlier in the episode, to um, lock the room and then just let it burn. Because obviously we know, based on episode 10 of season 1, that she can survive fire. It burns all her clothes, but she we, 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 we hear it every week in the intro. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, 
what, first of all, what did you make of that scene in general? You know, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, I, I, no, it was a great I scene. Say, but I, I thought I'd let you have the, the first intro to that. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, and, and, and then two, what is the significance going forward of this scene when we look at the kind of reaction to Danny's um, emergence from the fire? Well, it's it's kind of interesting. We've got two armies being built up right now on the show. We've got uh, you know, John and Sansa putting get putting together the wildlings and the knights of the Vale, and we've got um Danny putting together the Unsullied and the Dothraki. So we've got like these four very, very different armies that are all going to that are that that are being brought together, you know, two and two. And conceivably could all wind up fighting together against the, the, the White Walkers when the time comes, uh, if that's where things are headed, as they appear to be. And, and, and so I, I think that think that's interesting. Um, I, I, yeah, I, this scene was awesome. I think, you know, just the way, I mean, Amelia Clark, what a, what a performance. Like, just the way she, she just owned that, owned the room. Like, she just, that, that, that scene where this, power that this this sense of she knew exactly what she was doing and 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 uh really really well done and and, and such a cool scene and and um you know and then when she emerges from there and she's standing there naked you know game of thrones gets a lot of flack for for this and for its its its, um abundance of of nudity and and uh you know its use of quote-unquote sex position uh, when you know by putting a, a naked a naked character in a scene with a lot of exposition, a, 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 but in that in this moment, I felt that it, it worked really good because it was her making a statement to everybody that was looking on. You know, it was literally she was standing there going, "I have literally nothing, and I am more powerful than any of you." She's got she doesn't have armor, she doesn't have doesn't even have clothes, she doesn't have weapons, and yet she's killed all of the calls. And everybody and and burn down this like sacred place, and so that everybody bows every and, and and without getting a single scratch, without being burnt, no harm has come to her. So she's standing there saying, "I have literally nothing, and I am more powerful than any of you." And I thought that was really, really well done, really, really powerful. And and so that the 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 way this scene was shot was a bit uh, a bit awkward at at times um when with all the people bowing and, and her standing there but it, it was uh it was really really like i said it was awesome it was really really well done and and like i said now we've, she's got these two armies potentially to be joined by some ships uh, you know we know her her fleet was burned in the first episode of, of this season so she she'll need uh She'll need some support, and if, if only if only there were another faction that was known for their naval battles, who were about to choose a new leader who could determine a different uh, different direction for where they could go. If only such a faction existed in the series, um, you know, perhaps you know, if, if if such a faction could join up with her, you know, she would then be able to head for Westeros, and if King's Landing is burning. You know, maybe somebody, maybe, maybe the dragons are just what you need to burn it all to the ground and start something up, start, start something else new. So it does, it, it does feel like, um, you know, finally there was a bit of forward momentum to her story. Finally, it felt like we were back at a place where she was ready to, to head, she might be ready to head west sooner rather than later. And, um, the other thing was, you know, we've, we've, we talked in the past that we wanted, we didn't just want her to like escape from this and and nothing to to really change, 
and, and you know she was going back to the Dothraki for a reason to reclaim something that that she had when she was with them and that she had since lost and and um and I think she did that in in this moment that she went back and and it wasn't just oh I'm just revisiting the past and now I can oh I'm ready to move on it was like she had to do something spectacular to get out of it and in doing so was able to raise this massive massive army and, and inspire these people to follow her and now like i said dothraki unsullied great joys maybe uh there's there's three pretty solid factions then then head head west f- fix some of the political systems and the, the political situation and then head north and uh the knights of the veil vale and the wildlings and the w- knights watch will be waiting for you Fight off the fight off the night the White Walkers and and that's how the series will end. <laughs> you know, but it, you are we are kind of getting to a point now where we can sort of start seeing the end game begin. You know, the rough outline of the end game beginning to emerge. I think. Yeah, no, I, I could definitely see that, and the whole Greyjoy situation would be very interesting. Um, however, as we have seen with Game of Thrones. I never think anything is as easy as that. No, there will certainly no, be a few I'm obstacles sure. on the way to, um, of course, you know, at least slow down that process if, if, if that is what is going to happen. Um, I really loved this scene, though, and, and you talked about the inside the episode oh, at, at one point, and you know just the way in which, as you said, this idea usually of being nude and naked in Game of Thrones is a sign of weakness and a sign of of loss really of your perhaps identity or perhaps just your loss of strength in this one in this episode danny being nude was an exemplification of her power it it, it reminded the audience and, and it and it showcased for the first time to the dog racky on a on a much larger scale um danny's power and i think it will be an inspiration to many of them but not all of them because as we see on Game of Thrones, it's not as simplistic as just looking at the collective of people and saying, oh, well, this is the leader. Everyone follows the leader because they're the leader of this house. No, there's always defections, dissatisfactions, etc., etc. What's going to happen? There's a lot of people there. Um, you know, how, how are they all going to unite together? Is it going to be the interesting point? So with that, that for me brings an end to the, uh, the discussion of this episode, but I believe we have a preview of next episode yeah. just to finish on in terms of our discussion before we get on to the final thought. So um, I'll let you take it away, Dominic, and play that clip. All right, here is the preview for Game of Thrones season five, season six, episode five: The Door. Sansa, did you know about Ramsay? Does death only come for the wicked and leave the decent behind? Who makes a claim? I claim the salt throne. Knowledge has made you powerful, but there's still so much you don't know. Run, wake up! I'd say I, just watching this preview, I'm extremely excited. And you know what else makes it feel different is the music. Did you not feel like the music 
almost felt like there was a bit more intensity that was going to be attached to this episode. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're we're in for a real treat with with this episode. I, I mean, so much so much looks to be going on. Uh, you know, obviously Bran with the uh, with the uh, White Walkers and a vision. That's pretty. That's pretty intense. Yeah, it seems as though almost yeah. in the in the clip that he's able to interact with them, or at least they can they can see him. Yeah, well, I mean that's something we've speculated about, you know, with the, how it might relate to Hodor, and uh, and uh, and and um, you know we we talked about last week with the with was it the wind was it you know when he called out to Ned, so there's uh there's a lot of uh, there's some interesting stuff that could go on there. Um, also, uh, the King's Moot. Uh, King Smoot, whatever it is, and the election, the election. Well, I heard it is. So <laughs> I don't think we've actually seen really an election. No, in it's a Game of be. Thrones before. Like, it's different. It's, it's cool. It's, it's usually fight to the death. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so that that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. It'll be be cool to see more of uh, Euron Greyjoy. Hopefully, um, Arya's back as well. Arya's back with. Uh, yeah, I guess this, was this our first week without Arya? I think it was. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so Arya, Arya will be back. Um, uh, you know, raising some Yakin Hagar, raising some interesting questions about uh, about death, and hopefully, uh, hopefully Arya's story um, gets a little bit more direction too. Um, it, it's another one that's kind of I've I've enjoyed what we've seen from it, as I have with um, with with most of the stories, um, but it, it is sort of beginning to feel really. Yeah, at a time when all, a lot of the other stories are beginning to come together, it feels like it's just so separate, and it needs to be brought back into the fold soon. Well, um, it seems a little bit like the Tar- Tarly storyline, really, yeah. at the moment, with Sam and Gilly. I'm not, you know, we haven't seen anything more of them either, and I'm mm-hmm. kind of thinking to myself, how is this all going to fit together? Well, with, so, with, with Sam and Gilly, at least, you know, Sam is going to learn to become a maester. He might be able to find out some, in, some new information that could help John, and he could pass that along, whether he goes back yeah. or by Raven. You know, it, it, there's still, it feels, still feels connected a little bit because, because of that. But, but Arya really feels like it's, you know, it's, it's on the other side of the world. It's, it's, it's so separate. Yeah, I feel like she in this episode she'll probably get at least a briefing for her first mission. If not, she embarks on it. I think that's what's going to happen, and I think that her first mission will be incorporated into the wider story. At least I hope I've, so. I've seen I've seen some speculation that maybe the um, the faceless men heard about Jon Snow's resurrection and they don't approve. Ooh. And that would be that would be a cool way of getting her back involved. That, that's just speculation that I've read, and I thought was uh, I thought was interesting. I, I would I would like to see that. That would be a good way of really reuniting all the Stark children. If you if you send her to to Castle Black, then that's Jon, Sansa, and Arya. Bran is beyond the Wall, and Rickon's at Winterfell. They're all within a relatively small area at that point. Yeah, uh, and that then, would be interesting. And then finally. In the preview, it's the first thing we hear. Sansa and Littlefinger reunited, and she asks him the question, did you know? Did you know about Ramsay Bolton? And I'll I'll ask you, prediction, yes or no, did Peter Baelish know about Ramsay Bolton, or was that uh, an oversight on his part? I don't think he did. Sorry, I think he didn't know. 
And I'm basing this on one of the episodes at the beginning of season five when he even says to Ramsey, he says, I've heard a little, I've heard little about you, you know, bastard of whatever, Bruce Bolton. I feel like he was an unknown quantity. And I don't think he really did know. Otherwise, I don't, I, I don't think he would have sent her along. But it's going to take some convincing. I mean, obviously, in this preview, it kind of gives the indication that something bad's going to happen to Baelish. But I don't think anything that happens to Baelish will happen next episode. I think it's too yeah. soon. Yeah. We've only brought him back for one episode. And for a character who's been built up for so long, I don't imagine he's going to kind of you know, <laughs> suffer the same fate as like an Osha, for example, yeah. if you know what I mean, where she was brought back a couple of seasons later and then died the, the second episode she was brought back. I can't see that with Baelish. But what do you think? What do you think is going to happen? In yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I think he. I think this was the one thing that Littlefinger didn't know. It was the one sort of wild card in his plan, and he he and he wound up you know really damaging his uh, relationship with Sansa, and, and and it will take a lot before she is willing to trust him, even in the slightest, ever again. So that will be that will be very very. Um, yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm really looking forward to seeing those scenes play out. Um, but, but but what could help build that trust? Maybe some uh, armed yeah, forces, a little, a little army, a little army of knights of the Vale that could uh, that could really help. And the other thing we see in that preview is uh, Tyrion and Varys being greeted by a new Red Priestess, mm. and who, who is talking about this idea that you claim you know, knowledge has made helped you rise to this position of power, but almost like you don't know everything or, you know, maybe become arrogant in your strength of power. Be yeah. interested to see what she's actually talking about there. Yeah. It's going one, you know, I think we've said this, uh, every week this season, but it looks like we are in for a real treat next week. And we hope that you will join us again next week as we will discuss the episode, the door, the door, interesting title, interesting yeah. title. Is that what we're going to see? Just like, yeah, it's just, know, it's, 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 it's just like 10 minutes of good stuff and it's just 40 minutes, 40 of, a minutes door, of a door. Yeah. Like. <laughs> that would be, that would be something. Uh, but, yeah, before, but you know what, Dominic? Mm. Doors can be closed, but they can also be open. So that is true. That is true. Uh, before we go, just time for final thoughts and score out of 10. So, Kieran, I'll throw it over to you. Final thoughts, score out of 10. So, for this episode, I'm going to give this a score of 7.5 out of 10. Um, I thought it was an interesting episode not groundbreaking in the sense that we didn't have necessarily a massive shock some people could claim however I guess the Sansa and John stuff was kind of a shocking moment and the, and the Danny stuff but you know no major deaths or anything like that in this episode but I really enjoyed um, seeing the reunion between Sansa and John. I think that was a, a very poignant moment of the season and as you said it was really a moment in which we actually managed to feel happy for the characters and not necessarily not necessarily be upset about the fact that our happiness has led to one of them dying. So it, it, it's, it's quite a nice little contrast there. But I think this episode, again, was setting up a lot of what's to come, you know. We're kind of setting up the fact that the Vale are coming back in as a player with Lord Baelish. We're setting up the fact that now Danny's regroup... Um, is mobilizing forces. John and Sansa are beginning to gather a kind of muster of forces as well. Um, and we're starting to see battle lines drawn between the High Sparrow and the, uh, the, 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 the kings. 
uh, council. So be interested to see how this is all going to play out. But I did enjoy this as a setup episode, and I feel like next week, as we've kind of discussed, hopefully we'll see a bit of payoff. So all overall, though, a very solid episode, um, and one that will certainly keep the viewers on tenterhooks. Over to you, Dominic. Final thoughts and score out of ten. I'll, I'll give this one a, a, a an eight and a half um, because of the the happy reunion. That was nice to see, and uh, especially f- for the uh, well, especially for that, and for the, uh, the the Danny scene at the end, which, like I said, was was really really well done. Uh, great performances all around, and and just a a, a solid episode. Uh, laid some interesting groundwork. Um, moved some arcs forward. Uh, a really, really solid episode. So yeah, eight point five out of ten. That's it. We've made it to the end again. I'm sorry about the quality of my voice. I'm sorry for any of the coughs and uh, sniffles and whatever else you may have heard during the show. I tried to use the cough button as best I could, uh, but I'm sure a few. Well, I know a few made it through. So I apologize for that. Hopefully by next week. I will be uh, back back to normal. Either that or I'll be dead. I, it's one or the other. I'm pretty sure that's where we're going. Uh, before, before we go, Kieran, do you want to let folks know uh, what else you've got going on? Uh, yes, I have uh, Expression Show every Tuesday, 12 to 2 p.m. GMT time here in the UK, where it's just a kind of standard daytime music show that... It, uh, kind of talks about the mainstream music and just what's going on in the news lately so if you want to try and hear more of my voice then you're welcome to the way you can do that is go onto our website www.expression.fm and if you want to get in touch during that time then you can tweet expressionfm at expressionfm's twitter handle and you can like us on our facebook page www.facebook.com slash expressionfm and over to you, Dominic. How can folks get in touch and listen to the Star Wars Underworld? Yeah, you should. Uh, excuse me. Oh man, end of the show. End of the show. Just You're uh, almost there. Almost Dominic. there. Come on. Almost there. So uh, people should tune into the Star Wars Underworld podcast. Those are recorded live Thursday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern on Channel 1138.com and released the next day on iTunes. Uh, it's just a it's a breakdown of all the latest Star Wars news. We have a lot of fun discussions. We had a great uh, discussion about the status about the. Um, current uh, slate of star wars video games on the latest episode so you want to check that out we had our uh, video game correspondent trey atwood joined us to talk about that so uh, that was a fun show definitely want to check that out uh, so you can find that uh, on the itunes feed we'll search for star wars underworld or uh just go to starwarsunderworld.com and you'll be able to find it there and uh, starwarsunderworld.com is a great source for star wars uh, news and uh discussion and uh, of all sorts uh, and, uh, yeah, and, uh, again, thank you everybody for listening. Speaking of iTunes, um, like I said, it's been sorted out. Hopefully you'll be able to get it. Uh, it, hopefully you've been able to download this episode on iTunes. And if you are listening on iTunes, uh, thank you for doing so. We'd love it if you would leave us a five star review. If you're not listening on iTunes, uh, thank you. Anyways, you can go to, you can get, go to iTunes now. It's probably a little bit easier. And uh, we would love it if you would leave us a five star review too. Five star reviews are always welcome. Uh, and uh, yeah, and the Facebook page still uh, still keep checking that out. We've been posting some some links and some pics and some videos. Uh, so you definitely want to check that out. Just search for the Watchers of Westeros. Uh, we're on Twitter at Watcher Westeros. I'm at Dominic J25, and Kieran is at C Duggan Six. 
That'll do it. So join us next week for our just either for what will either be our discussion of the door or my memorial service. Uh, because I'll be dead. This cold will kill me. Uh, no, no, no. Thank you everybody for listening again. Apologies for the quality of my voice. We'll see you next time to talk about the door. It's a wrap. It's a wrap.